about to go to Fire Festival. Could be amazing. Could be a disaster. Fire Festival was supposed to be the new Coachella, the new Burning Man. Exclusivity with access to premier talent. It was going to be an experience bordering on impossible. What's the worst thing that could possibly happen? And it is time for your weekly festival of ideas, your time to really suck up the perspectives of a wide range of panelists, including myself, Dan Spaventa, and my associate uh, in Washington. Yeah, it's Sam. How's it going? Um, Dan, it's, is it, it's freezing by you, right? Isn't it like two degrees? Yeah, it was like four degrees most of the day. That's absurd. I mean, it's a little warmer here, given that I live in the uh, in the old South here. But either way, it's just, it's it's not habitable outside. A time when the government is still frozen shut. <laughs> yep, uh, I had family in town this weekend, and all the Smithsonian's are closed. Any. Uh, DC museum with federal funding is closed. I had to go to like random shit in like Alexandria because I'm, I mean, it was even like the bathrooms on some of the monuments. I mean, uh, I took them to the FDR Memorial and some of the outdoor bathrooms were non-operational because of the shutdown, which is honestly just gross also. Yeah, but you can't leave those bathrooms without uh, the janitorial, uh, you know, staff members. I, I I do wonder how long, like, logistically this can continue. Yeah, I mean, at this point, it's, it's becoming really chaotic. The I saw Jared Holt share a, lot, a photo of a food line for furloughed workers in D.C. that was just, like, around a block. I mean, a lot of people are affected now. It's pretty bad, but someone who's not affected by the shutdown, Kamala Harris... Yes, she has, as expected, thrown her hat in the ring. She will be running for president in 2020. And this comes one day after she had a meeting with B.B. Netanyahu. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. What do we, what do we, what is the official take of the plunge on this whole situation? I mean,. It is telling that the day before she announces, she kind of in, goes and asks Israel's permission for her presidential run, you could say. Obviously, that sounds conspiratorial, and it's not that explicit. But, I mean, we saw a similar thing with Beto, where as soon as he was gaining this, like, 2020 attention, he immediately started, you know, putting out a lot of media about how he's close with his contacts at APAC, and it is kind of a rite of passage for a lot of these both Democrats and Republicans. Let's not forget Trump's horrendous appearance at like the RJC, where he was like, Jews, you're, you're natural business people. <laughs> I'm a negotiator like you folks. We're negotiators. Do you want to renegotiate deals? We, some of us renegotiate deals. I would say about 99.9. Is there anybody that doesn't renegotiate deals in this room? This room negotiates. I want to renegotiate this room. Perhaps more than any room I've ever spoken to. Maybe more. It's okay. I've, I've been called on that a couple of times, too. 
you're not going to support me, even though you know I'm the best thing that could ever happen to Israel. And I, I, I'll be that. And the real, I know why you're not going to support me. And, you know, you're not going to support me because I don't want your money. You don't want to give me money, okay? But that's okay. You want to control your own politician. But, you know, beyond that, when you look at her policies, there is this kind of half-hearted Medicare for All endorsement that I saw Tim Faust, who is a Medicare for All activist who's uh, probably the person I've seen articulate this stuff to the masses like the most effectively. Uh, He seemed to be skeptical about her commitment to actually, you know, like what we've talked about before where it's like healthcare access versus actually like having it. Right, you know, affordable healthcare as opposed to universal health care and she also had this you know middle class rent subsidy which like i'm looking at the summary of it in the washington post and i don't see how a policy like this uh prevents the landlords from raising rents because there is no like universal rent control right no, it doesn't come with that. And I mean, I think it was it's something like if you make under $100,000 a year and you're renting and your rent accounts for 30% or more of your income, you get this tax subsidy. But I mean, if you do like the math on that, it means that like whether or not you make the difference of like a couple thousand dollars per year, or like you make a couple extra hundred bucks or two in your paycheck could, you know, de- grant you or deny you this kind of arbitrary tax credit depending on your rent it's just i don't know it someone made the point i think that it creates this idea that there is this one universal like livable standard that if everyone just had this much they wouldn't be able to complain or something i mean even if this turns out to be a good thing it immediately even in the washington post headline announcing kamal harris's run comes with this price tag of three trillion dollars which i mean this obviously has to be quantified in terms of tax plans, which, you know, federal tax plans are obviously insanely complex. But I guess it just instantly already has this kind of I can see Republicans rallying like Kamala Harris wants us to have pay three trillion dollars for people who are living in apartments and stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you can anticipate the attacks for that sort of stuff um i think some have also been like skeptical of her criminal justice uh history this very very tough on crime stance she had while she was a prosecutor in california right and also attorney general she i mean she kind of early on made a name for herself uh in this high profile case where she I guess, opposed the death penalty in one case. But since then, she has kind of been more aggressive with it to the point that she has kind of suppressed certain evidence from coming through or denied, I guess, appeals for you know DNA analysis and kind of more objective evidence to come th- forward. And she has kind of built her career largely on imprisoning people in the bay area that she is from uh in california specifically in like oakland this is like kind of a paraphrase but she argued that the reduction of prison populations in california was a bad idea because the state would lose low-wage workers from it and 
I mean, is that literally not, uh, Sam, is that literally not like slavery, the sort yeah. of thing she's arguing for? I mean, this is, I mean, this is hardly uh, progressive. No. I, people have made the point that every progressive victory of hers comes with, you know, every step forward, you get two steps back. And when you administer the, I guess, criminal justice system, especially in a state as large as California, then your main job is to throw a lot of poor people in jail. I mean, your main job in her case also to throw a lot of like black and brown people in jail. In, and it's just, it's hard for people to get excited about her as a progressive candidate, especially when she talks about things like criminal justice. You know, if she had these views on criminal justice, it seems like she could have put them into practice in her long career working in the criminal justice system in California. And honestly, to announce her run on Martin Luther King Day is to make this association with like MLK's like, you know, black radical legacy. It's just like it really seems uh, deliberate to make that association by doing it today when we're recording. It's also like insultingly anachronistic considering she came up during the tough on crime era in the 90s and like the Clinton years. And I mean, during that time, the t- the kind of tough on crime bills that d- Democrats like Joe Biden and Bill Clinton supported w- put a lot of people in jail using things like the war on drugs, which perpetuated into the 90s and to today. And it. It's just it's kind of it's it is disingenuous for someone like her to, you know, claim back, call back to obviously on MLK Day. Everyone makes a an awful take describing what MLK would have thought today. But I don't know. It, it, it is like flagrantly dishonest. Yeah, you, you got to feel bad for the FBI's social media intern who has to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you see that tweet? Yeah, the FBI, the CIA, I mean, you know, do these entities have to put out like a statement on, I know that MLK Day is a federal holiday against the wishes of John McCain, as we described on the show, and, uh, but either way, do they have to put out these statements, they have to pay lip service to somebody who they, you know, the FBI specifically sent him a letter urging him to kill himself. I mean, it's it's not subtle. Oh, also some genuinely like evil policies that she championed was this one where parents whose children were found to be habitually truant in elementary school could be prosecuted despite concerns it would disproportionately affect low income people of color. She pushed for that anyway. Right, which isn't even like in any kind of intuitive way to solve that problem. It's just, I don't know, it was just a, a strategy of declaring that she was representing a certain coalition and that coalition is not friendly to people that progressive policies are supposed to uplift. And then we see some liberals taking a very like patronizing position uh, you pulled this tweet from Jill Filipovic. Uh, I'll just read it. Harris was undoubtedly under enormous pressure to prove herself to be, quote, tough, especially as a woman, especially in all caps, as a black woman. That doesn't excuse the worst excesses, but it does contextualize the many demands on her. 
So I guess she's making the argument that Kamala Harris had to be tough on crime in order to become the, you know, attorney general of California and become like a prosecutor and that her career. And this is something also you heard about Obama in a way. They kind of said that Obama had to do drone strikes because as a black man, he could not otherwise, you know, then the Republicans would really have made his life miserable as if they weren't doing that. Like anyway, you know, you, at the end of the day, you can't like try to win people over with this like rhetoric or, you know, I'm one of the I'm going to help administer this, you know, right wing state. They're not going to listen to you, even if they appreciate what you're doing. They're not going to make that known and they're still going to fight you tooth and nail. So being there's no like being conciliatory with the right wing these days. And it's a mistake for people to think that a centrist approach is going to work these days. And Honestly, the that argument that, you know, you have to consider that Kamala Harris wasn't perfect, but she's a black woman. I mean, it's kind of patronizing and demeaning, obviously, but it also perversely leads you to the conclusion that you should just never support a black candidate or a, a female candidate or both. Because, I mean, then if, if it is going to be harmful to the progressive cause, then, I mean, and, th- and that's just... Dis- that's dishonest. It's not. Tr- it's not true that by virtue of her identity, she wouldn't be a good champion of progressive policies. Because there are plenty of progressive politicians who are women or women of color or men of color, and it's it's just f- very dishonest and cynical to make this argument that like you have to cut her slack because she's a black lady. That that's really fucking dishonest, patronizing, and uh, destructive. Honestly. Well, we are going to hear a ton about this uh, woman and all of the other 2020 Democrats, so let's just uh, stop for now. Um, (laughs) So, we're very anti-23 and me, and not only because I have doubts about the legitimacy of the product. I I literally don't think it's scientifically valid to say that you're like 196th uh, Mongolian or whatever but this story from uh, this week found uh, identical twins who got completely different 23andMe results right and it wasn't just 23andMe they did five different DNA ancestry kits and none of them were similar and none of them and in none of them were they similar to one another, even though an analysis of their genetics showed that these twins were very close to like completely genetically identical. <laughs> um, as you would imagine, like some twins are, you know, identical twins to be, but in their case, even if they're identical twins, they are truly like pretty identical. So beyond 23andMe, putting out what we think is a bullshit product. I would say we agree on this, that the cultural sort of effect this has had, the sort of like eugenics language it brings uh, into the discourse, uh, that's definitely a negative, uh, right? Right, because the dark side of all this is just the specter of, you know, eugenics or... Blood purity. (laughs) Yeah, or like in Elizabeth Warren's case, the, you know, racist, like... 
blood quantum tests of the Native American communities in the U.S. I mean, th- the fact that she reinjected that into our public discourse was just such a big step back, especially since she, since she used this as like a an own on Donald Trump, who has really kind of reanimated a lot of kind of xenophobic, you know, I guess theories and ideas from back to like the 1920s and the race science era. And at this point, it's just, it it is very, it's cynical, but also destructive to claim that you can quantify someone's race based on their genes, which any geneticist who doesn't work for one of these stupid companies will tell you. So it's safe to say, Sam, that we will not, have a dna company be the sponsors for this podcast no i'm not gonna be uh telling you guys to go spit in the cup and put it in the mail anytime soon but either way these identical twins they put charlsey agro and her twin sister carly bought home kits from ancestry dna my heritage 23 and me family tree dna and living dna and you know tested it out and it came back 23andme said that they had italian eastern european balkan broadly european others and french and german characteristics well only charlsey has french and german characteristics apparently carly does not but the percentages on all these are different as despite the fact that as we said they did have very similar genomes supposedly and it kind of compares them to the other ones like ancestry dna and my heritage dna for ancestry dna it also came up with eastern europe and russia italy greece and the balkans baltic states turkey and the caucasus injected this time apparently but again the percentages are off between the two of them my heritage dna says balkan greek north and west europe middle east italian i mean as i've said also this is I don't know how they attach, come up with these like generalized uh, categories for genetic traits, if that makes sense. Like, how is, you know, the certain genomic difference come out to like, oh, that's Eastern Europe and Russia broadly? Like, that's a fucking gigantic swath of territory, including Baltic states. It's very confusing. Sam, you're not selling a DNA test, you're selling. A dream. <laughs> Are you gonna? F- it's a lifestyle. <laughs> I'm gonna fire fest you. Yeah, you're 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 Billy McFarlanding the vaguely eugenic app that tells. You, is this an app? I don't think it's an app. It's just this weird, you know, late capitalist thing that could be an app. I'm sure they probably have tried or developed an app, but I'm not paying to find out. This is so ridiculous. I, I don't think that people should be submitting their like they're putting up their like genomes for analysis and paying money to have someone tell them that they're like broadly from some general part of the globe literally like i mean these are like trying to attach genes to continents and as we mentioned with elizabeth warren's case they don't distinguish with native american genes apparently and for 23andme between north and south americans i mean this is like these are extremely broad swaths of like territory that are reduced to a single thing that they put on you know your percentages it's complete fucking nonsense with dark undertones also the reality is you are paying 
for a service that will make you pay for your data and then they will sell your data for more money. So great stuff, everyone. Um, speaking of sponsorships, um, we had Ben Shapiro <laughs> at the March for Life, which was the anti-abortion rally in Washington over the weekend. Ben Shapiro was out there talking about how he would not kill baby Hitler. <laughs> Put the clip in here. It's amazing. Right, the, the, the argument, I guess, here is that would you kill baby Hitler? And the truth is that no pro-life person on earth would kill baby Hitler. Right, because baby Hitler wasn't Hitler. Adult Hitler was Hitler. Baby Hitler was a baby. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I love every time you go on YouTube, his suggestive videos are like Ben Shapiro, how he does his insane logic. And then you break down what it actually is. And it's like, well, would you kill baby Hitler? It's like this fucking half-baked internet shit. The cool kid's philosopher, <laughs> he was called by the New York Times. And... The, uh, you know, emphasis on kid, because he looks like a child, but it's uh, pretty funny because he did uh, live reads for his, like, podcast recording that he did at this anti-abortion march, and he lost uh, multiple sponsors (laughs) because they did not want, like, one was a meditation app called Calm. (laughs) Yeah, that was so funny. People were saying that he was like hawking the toothbrush subscriptions yeah, quip, or whatever uh, the fuck. <laughs> yeah, quip, like you said. I don't, <laughs> it's so funny that this is where we're at with the pro-life movement in the U.S. currently. And uh, I don't know. I would not kill baby Hitler because baby Hitler was a baby. You cannot outlogic that. Babies don't care about your feelings. I mean, there's something about the doing live ad reads in front of people that kind of speaks to his like vague social awkwardness that I think is hilarious. He's like, the funniest were people defending him on Twitter. Like, it's totally reasonable to do live ad reads during like a political rally. Are you? But it's like, I mean, I I have listened. To so many live podcasts, they always just pre-record the reads. Right. <laughs> you don't have to do it to the crowd. He definitely doesn't have very good radio skills, but I mean the so the Ben Shapiro was not really the worst part of this March for Our Life, which you know, obvious or not March for Our Life, March for Life, ironically for the people who have no lives. But anyway, they the the magazines which i we have discussed on this show before i've commented on how during like the spring and i guess lead up to summer all the sp- local f- high schools or middle schools bring have field trips to dc and inevitably these kids like buy maga memorabilia at the tourist shops and are wearing it around like completely oblivious to i guess the undertones and obviously it's usually white kids that are doing this so we all saw the images that emerged over the weekend and what do we want to start with with this uh this event sam because you know it's not like charlottesville like no violence broke out but 
I think at the very least, like even the most kind, uh, generous uh, description of this, clearly like they were bullying and intimidating some Native Americans. Yeah, that's really the most charitable interpretation you can take. Um, So basically, I think the first image that surfaced of this was of this I guess high schooler from this is a Catholic high school from in Kentucky, I want to say, called like Covington Catholic. And they, I guess, bust their disturbing Catholic school kids. And apparently it's like an expensive one too. So these are rich conservative Catholic kids from from Kentucky, from you know, like it or not, Trump territory. And they were they came in for the March for Life for this preposterous pro-life event, which I will say I was around in D.C. this weekend. I didn't see very much of this. I saw much more of, a, you know, the women's march and stuff that's normal going on, not these freaks. But either way, the image was of one of these smirking teens just like giving this. I guess some people have described it. The the man, Nathan Phillips, who is the recipient of this smirk is is put it specifically as like he recognized this like the kind of racist glee in this kid's eyes where he's clearly mocking like a native american which is not unknown for dipshit white kids to do and that he's clearly like taking this kind of i guess like racist glee and undermining this man who was there for uh an unrelated march for you know indigenous peoples and clearly trying to i guess disrespect what this guy's message was and this image went viral as this kind of you know this is what where we're at in america today these trump teens are being awful to this you know dignified native american man who was a a former marine yes he was a vietnam veteran and Interestingly, you know, the backlash to the initial anger towards the Trump teens suggested that the black Israelites who frequent this uh, D.C. area uh, were shouting at the teens and that the teens and I believe this was what was in the um the statement that came out from one of the teens, like mom's lawyer, clearly uh, that like they were that they were thinking that they were like provoked, right? So that this is like when the backlash after the photo blew up, kind of suggested that maybe we didn't see the whole picture and maybe the media distorted it. And there was this one article on Reason.com, which is kind of like a center right, I guess, like libertarian almost leaning. Um, publication and it's by this guy robbie sove and he the article was called like the media wildly mischaracterized that video of covington catholic students confronting a native american vet it doesn't really roll off the tongue very well but he argued that he's like if you watch this hour and 45 minute long video actually there are these black israelites who are yelling at the high schoolers and you know calling them homophobic slurs and stuff and so like Dan, did you watch any of this particular, this absurdly long video? Like, what were your reactions to this argument? I think you can look at any video of a crowd and kind of see what you want to see, which I think Robbie is doing here because, I mean, when I looked at it, it's just, yeah, I mean, in the footage, you clearly see uh, these children just um, 
I mean, there was one kid like taking his shirt off and they're doing like the tomahawk chops and the, the I mean, stereotypical like grunting and sort of chants. Even when they were taunting like the black Israelites, some of them were kind of like hooting and like doing like monkey, you know, uh, like gestures. Specifically, like now that this, I guess this Reason.com article prompted a lot of people to share alternative, you know, views that they had of the magazines, including, you know, the magazines outside of where this event took place, where this like showdown took place on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, ironically, or, you know, maybe too fittingly. But either way, he, they, these kids were like harassing women around like on their field trip they were just being ruffians the whole time yeah. it's not out of character for them clearly yeah i just watched a video of like some of the you know red-hatted teens sitting near the event and it was uh, posted by someone who was there and it was these two girls walking and then they were calling them sluts and and shouting like maga at them so I- I'm not going to view people like this charitably. And then when you see resurfaced from 2015, this high school at a basketball game had multiple students in full blackface. Yeah. And I mean, since that people have been sharing all kinds of accounts that like people who went to coveting Catholic and there was, I saw a, a gay person shared his, I guess, account of be coming out in high school and people harassing him in such like a conservative environment. I mean, it's just, it's clear that they're just pretending. And like you said, the kid prepared that preposterous, the, the kid, I think his parents, his mom is a, a VP at Fidelity Investments, which is like a massive investment bank. I think it handles a lot of like retirement accounts. And then hang on, didn't she say that like the black Muslims were taunting my son? <laughs> like, yeah. didn't she, 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 she made like a very odd quote to a web uh, a publication. That's something that we also need to unpack is the the scapegoating of like black extremism, as people will say, or sometimes like the Southern Poverty Law Center or like the ADL will call it black supremacy, which is like a I, I feel like it's kind of a craven attempt to equate. Like you said, I mean, if you're in an urban area like I'm in D.C., you're in New York, you see like black Israelites, like other black nationalists, like Nation of Islam, whatever people like on their soapboxes, like shouting. They try to provoke you. You don't if you're especially if you're like a white guy, like you don't engage. I mean, just I, I mean, I, it's I'm not trying to like defend them, but like you just show yourself as such a fucking like out of towner idiot, like such a suburban fool. I mean, in this video where the kids are arguing with like the black Israelites for upwards of like an hour. I mean, the they're like adults and like chaperones who join in. There's certain sa- chaperones on the group who I think have taken the most heat for just really not doing anything. And I'm just like. Come on, you know, how fucking dumb are you? Why are you like standing outside the Lincoln Memorial, like yelling at these people? And at the end of the day, I, when you look at the videos, there's like four of these like black Israelites and like a hundred of these fucking hooting like white kids who are screaming at them. And I mean, there, there's all kinds of like racial, like and fucking homophobic shit being thrown both ways. It's just like, how do you let this happen? I'd also like to just quickly maybe unpack this. See, to me, wearing the MAGA hat is a sort of aggression towards, like, 
anyone that fucking sees you. I mean, wearing that hat in public is like wearing a Confederate flag bandana. Right. And and people who wear both of them and act like they're not racist, they ha- like they appeal to this fucking cowardly plausible deniability about it. They're always like, "Oh, it's not racist. This is our president," which is objectively true, but yeah, it's it's also not that big a jump. Yeah, our president is fucking racist. This is a racist country. And when you see an image of a white teen or in this case like a lot of white teens taunting and yelling and staring down at like a lone Native American man, and there are other like pe- indigenous peoples who were with him who gave this account and their accounts and it seems like there's, you know, with these white teens and also with, you know, Brett Kavanaugh and like other kind of conservative child darlings, there's always this rush to humanize them and understand where they were coming from. And, you know, oh, they were just kids. They were excited. They were in the city and all this shit. Whereas with, you know, the victims of police brutality, with even like Tamir Rice, like a 12 year old kid, there's never this rush to do so. There's always the this, you know, rush to drag them instead and say like oh well what was he doing playing with a toy gun anyway and all this awful shit and it's just such a fucking obvious double standard and the indigenous people's march was to raise awareness for missing and murdered indigenous women and this is like one of the most vulnerable populations in the country who disproportionately face domestic violence murder kidnapping um so like drug abuse, unemployment, I mean, lack of opportunity, discrimination. They they have one of the hardest shakes in this country, for sure. Yeah, I've read uh, about the alcoholism that, you know, affects the community. It's like these communities uh, who were genocided by these white kids' grandparents Oh, not sorry. Fuck. Maybe grandparents. You never know. I mean, it's the the history of the subjugation of Native American people in this country is ongoing. I don't know. I was dismayed by the amount, and maybe this is just like the way Twitter and social media kind of tries to feed you a both sides narrative. Uh, I, I don't know. There was seemed to be this knee jerk reaction that, oh well this mob is going after these boys so clearly these boys couldn't possibly be as bad as all these people are saying they are and let's just like tear the fucking room apart looking for anything to make these boys uh not culpable and i don't give a fuck if these kids are doxxed and and shamed online like the charlottesville nazis like i don't give a shit their school deserves to be like dragged through the mud and the fact that the the school apologized immediately like what does that tell you right if it was nothing they wouldn't have apologized and they've gone like dark on all kinds of social media and have like aren't responding to calls apparently i mean they clearly realize that their their spot has been blown up by this video going viral. Clearly, this kid Nick Sandman and his mom realize that this was a problem when they hired a publicity firm to like clear his name. But at the end of the day, these are all rich kids at an elite Catholic school. They can take it, you know. Like I, and again, this there is this very dangerous and I think the like good way to close this out and connect this to the women's march this weekend and the kind of narrative around that. There's this rush to equate, I guess 
like what the SPLC and the ADL call black supremacy or you know black nationalists with white nationalists and there's just really no comparison to be made between white supremacy and imagined you know black supremacy between like the soapbox guy, box guys and between like the transatlantic slave trade there's just no comparison to be made and it, it really came out a lot in the discourse about the Women's March this weekend, which I don't think was as big nearly as the you know original Women's March and went after Trump was elected two years ago. And I think that in general, it came up so much because they were trying to get Tamika Mallory and Linda Sarsour to denounce Farrakhan and like the anti-Semitism on the left and, you know, pro-Palestine and stuff like this. And I think it's just such this like classic bait and switch. And, you know, with regarding Farrakhan, he's not a good guy, but he did in the 90s, he did get a million people to march on D.C., which is what the Women's March was trying to do. And if you want to like criticize Farrakhan and the role he plays in organizing, then you should maybe ask why there is such a paucity of people who are able to do this kind of organizing and why he comes up so often that people can't really denounce him without breaking a lot of ties with organizations with which they are able to do good work. I mean, just it's he's one guy, he's bad, but I don't see like the fruit of Islam ever like attacking Jewish people. I don't feel particularly threatened by like black nationalism. And it's just very like destructive, especially to left wing movements to allow this to kind of derail, you know, the discourse like this. And when you cave to bad faith arguments about, you know, people like Farrakhan, like they did towards the women's March, like you are caving to like the Megan McCain's of the world. <laughs> so fuck that. Yeah. And you know, this is so, so fitting because we can transition from this, you know, annoying story into the pop culture corner with the guy who really is kind of the Genesis, like the progenitor of this annoying, like Jake Tapper, Megan McCain, you know, attempt to find the ideological center on every fucking possible issue. Even something as black and white literally as like racism or white supremacy or genocide. And I mean, this is Aaron Sorkin and his most, his, his re-entry into politics and his comment on the 2020 election and the state of affairs currently. Sam, I wanted to ask you, now this is the pop culture corner, so what Sorkin have you actually watched? I've watched The West Wing. I have watched a couple episodes of The Newsroom, but I came to The Newsroom too late, and I, I, there's no way I'm going to make it through it at like, my current age. So I have seen every episode of The Newsroom. It took me years. <laughs> to, it took me a long time to get through it. it it's it, it's a horrendously uh, just self-important, like uh, just utter fantasy of what the news media is like but um i've also seen studio 60 on the sunset strip sam do you know this show is like a one season uh <laughs> no i've heard of this but it was it was a drama either. like the west wing but it was about and it came out the same fall as 30 rock but it was like this it starred like uh matthew perry and bradley whitford <laughs> <laughs> and they, it was just this drama about an SNL-like show, and it was fucking terrible. 
It's like a worse version of that uh, that show with Gary Shandling, the Larry Sanders yes. show. Yes. Oh, I love the Larry Sanders show. But the Aaron Sorkin uh, interview that popped up online with uh, CNN's Fareed Zakaria. <laughs> Another winner. Sorkin had this to say. I really like the new crop of young people who were just elected to Congress. <laughs> they now need to stop acting like young people, okay? It's time to do that. I think that there's a great opportunity here, now more than ever, for Democrats to be the non-stupid party, to point out the difference that it's not just about transgender bathrooms. Oh. That's a Republican talking point they're trying to distract you with, uh, okay. that we haven't forgotten about uh, the economic anxiety of the middle class, but we're going to be smart about this. We're not going to be mean about it. So, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was quick to uh, call out Sorkin on this. I mean, this is just... I mean, the most easy point to pick out of this to show that Sorkin is not to be taken seriously because he wrote, like, you know, uh, politics porn is this line about transgender bathrooms like like boiling that down to represent like frivolity is it, it just shows how ridiculous this man is right and if it's if politics is only about winning as if like you know standing up for a community that is vulnerable like the trans community as if that's going to be a bad thing because you're going to lose, then it betrays the fact that you don't actually care about politics beyond a kind of narrative, you know, interest, which makes sense for, you know, Aaron Sorkin, who is a writer and not an actual politician, nor is he the kind of person who's going to be affected by these sorts of things. He has obviously a man of great privilege as evidenced by the reminder that Dan, you pulled up, which is that he, at the age of 40, when he was a grown-ass man, was, you know, nabbed at the Hollywood Burbank air airport for trying to bring through a carry-on with, like, hallucinogenic mushrooms, weed, and, like, and literally crack cocaine. Yeah, he had a metal crack pipe that set off the... <laughs> and this was, like, two months Why after... Why would you get a glass one or something? <laughs> like... <laughs> two months not that i've ever even done this but wouldn't that be like the first thing you would think of if you were like not in a drug-fueled rage and this is two months after he received a award for drug recovery so he had a a, a pretty uh, intense relapse and tried to bring the shrooms on the plane <laughs> see he he was trying to apply that advice for young politicians. He should have applied it to himself. I mean, listen, Aaron, you're trying to distract yourself by bringing in the crack pipe and the crack. You really need to focus on bringing in the mushrooms and your weed, which is, I think, probably a little safer anyway. I think the topic of what Aaron Sorkin has done to the minds of, I guess, liberals and like his writing style, how kind of weird and like it's that that accelerated sort of speech like very like you know uh wordy sentences with like a lot of walk and talk uh montages he thinks that that sort of cocaine fueled like dialogue is what will like save this nation <laughs> yeah which is ironic because i mean if trump was debauched in any way we know what his 
drug of choice was. I mean, specifically, they mentioned him snorting Adderall. Some some account of him we mentioned on the show recently mentioned him snorting Adderall. But Trump, like Aaron Sorkin, takes his pleasure through the nose and. It like it's it, if you think you're gonna fight blow with blow, then I don't think we're gonna we're gonna win this one. And uh, I thought it was funny. <laughs> Michael Cooperman tweeted, "Aaron Sorkin, young politicians need to start acting like fictional characters written by a much older white man, or else." <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is definitely a case of old man shakes fist at cloud, and uh, he just needs to accept his, you know irrelevancy and maybe own up a little bit for this uh, rush to the center that we've been analyzing on this show do you know what i heard he's uh thinking about working on next lay it on me what about a little sequel called the social network (laughs) 2 is jesse eisenberg still gonna be in it I mean, it hasn't gotten that far, but he's thinking about it. You know, imagine, like, Cambridge Analytica with, like, Jesse Eisenberg. Yeah, well. You know, I I really like that movie when it came out. I heard it's it's less fun to watch now in the the current, uh, like, after all that we've seen Mark Zuckerberg do. So maybe that would be worth a watch for us sometime for uh, this segment. Yeah, if we ever have a slow pop culture week, we can do that. But um, no, I think my main takeaway from Aaron Sorkin's continued presence is, you know, a lot of his, I don't begrudge anyone who enjoys his material because it is kind of like this appeal to this idea that our politicians or, you know, our journalists are these actually like amazing, compromising and, you know, conflicted characters. But this is not just the material for our times now. We've seen kind of what this has has allowed to, you know, engender in Donald Trump and the rise in the far right coming to the center as far as the way people have been doing it for the past like 20 years, you know, since the West Wing and all this has run its course, have only led us to slide further to the right. And uh, I think we need to just uh, put that in the bin for now. And... Let's talk a little bit about, ugh, I hate this shit. <laughs> I mean, all right, Greta Van Fleet is this uh, band. They played on SNL. They look like they're like 16, <laughs> and I, I just fucking hate their their whole style. It's this very, like, you know, uh, you know, bought a Halloween costume uh, for, like, and it said hippie on it. <laughs> Yeah, um, so we should put the clip of them playing in before we say anymore, or else it's going to seem like we're being mean. But here's them performing on SNL. So they've been kind of ripped by the music press as like a, a Led Zeppelin ripoff. Uh, I, I don't even want to like give them that much credit. I, <laughs> I I just fucking hate this. Yeah, it's funny because they apparently before their uh, SNL performance said something like, "Oh, it's time to stop the Led Zeppelin comparisons." And I was like, "That's more of an insult to Led Zeppelin than it is to you." I mean, for you, that's a compliment. 
Yeah, I was just very surprised that they got booked to play SNL, and I didn't feel like they, like, I, all I had known of them was that, like, scathing Pitchfork review that was, like, the first Pitchfork thing I'd heard, seen shared in years. Yeah, I saw that, in which they said that they were just having a moment, you know, by some weird, you know, twist of the algorithm, which may be true. I mean, this band was nominated for grammys based on two eps and like you said they are like teenagers and they started playing when they're very young i read an article about them from i guess about a year and a half ago when they first like came on people's radar and the quote from the mother of the front man whose name is josh kishka and uh apparently his brother sam kishka is also also in the band but karen kishka their mother said it's very exciting and it's very crazy you know I'm putting in here, uh, referring to their, I guess, their musical success. And she says, it's kind of scary, but they've got each other. So they're not alone as individuals. And we all know the people surrounding them. I've lectured them. They were playing bars when Sam Kishka was like 13 and there were drunk people all over them. They got flashed by a woman once. I said, that's just life, boys. (laughs) Ugh. Apparently they have the most nominations out of any rock band this year's Grammys. So uh, if you need any more proof that the uh, Grammy Awards are atrocious. <laughs> yeah, clearly out of touch. And I mean, also the the modern like rock, like popular rock music, uh, you know, Nickelback scene is so bad. I remember seeing one article that was like, you know, Disturbed and um, Greta on Veta, Greta Van Fleek are the top chart, you know, performances this week or something. Ugh. You can see just to show like what kind of company they keep. Yeah, it's a dark time for music. Um, but, you know, we have to now turn the clock back sam because uh we watched both of the fire festival documentaries <laughs> that's right folks you know we were gonna do it <laughs> um all right uh where do we start with this let's uh i guess the hulu one we watched first because it came out first so how can we describe the hulu documentary i would say it is definitely a more I would say they broadened the lens a little bit to what culturally produced Billy McFarlane and the Fire Festival. And where you, the Netflix one, you more see like what happened on the ground. Yeah. I almost felt like the Hulu one, which is called Fire Fraud, was kind of a better primer than seeing like seeing that one before you see the Netflix one. I think kind of gets you into understanding what the mechanics of Billy McFarlane, the main player's, you know, scam enterprise was. It gives you a really good background on Magnesis, the, I guess, kind of like black card, credit card company that he founded where it literally just lifts your personal credit card strip 
onto this black card that you get to swipe and look cool and then you get to like go to a like a co-working space it, it was very dystopian and like neoliberal and you know startup app economy focused but you go there and like you can party at night and there's like booze at the townhouse at the magnesis townhouse and of course magnesis as they said many times was like a made-up word that is like unpronounceable and makes no phonetic sense so who is Billy McFarlane? He was touted as this like wunderkind, sort of like okay, it reminded me of like Ryan from season like three. Whatever Ryan in the office gets like promoted to being like a you know a big like head honcho in corporate, and he's just like completely out of his depth. Yeah, I mean Billy McFarlane. You look at him. I mean this is like a human pile of cocaine. <laughs> yeah, apparently. So he went to a like expensive preparatory school in um, New Jersey, and then he went to Bucknell for like a year before dropping out and then getting into startups or whatever the fuck. So, you know, he's got like the rich parents uh, bankrolling his bizarre like business adventures. But he also just has this uncanny ability to like talk like VC money out of the investors in his startups and apps. Like he really raises a ton of money out of nowhere and runs these ticket scams where he tells people he can deliver, you know, really exclusive like Hamilton tickets for like hundreds of people uh, for people. And he just runs these scams that every time he runs one, he has to use the money from a previous scam to buy the tickets so that he can run the next one. And it's a very bizarre way that he runs business. So you get a really uh, good picture of what's going on in his head in the Hulu doc because he's interviewed in it. And people have criticized the filmmakers for paying Billy McFarlane to appear in the documentary. But I don't know. It was kind of uh, important, I think, to actually get his side. And I I disagree with some characterizations I read that they didn't, like, grill him enough. I think, like, they pretty much, like, raked him over the coals. I think you can't walk out of that, like, sympathetic towards Billy. It's called fire fraud. And, I mean, we should start off by saying that Billy McFarlane for the fraud that he committed with Firefest, um, is in jail for six years. Oh, yeah. And, okay, Sam, do you want to maybe just give a broad, like, timeline of, like, the story? Right. So, for the uninitiated with Firefest, this scam artist we've described, Billy McFarland, planned this kickoff for fire which is an app that he came up with this up with you know with jaw rule with this kind of washed up rapper from the mid 2000s to everybody that be living it up we say what i do and all my ladies that be giving it up oh. what and he and Ja Rule wanted to create, they called it, you know, the Uber of booking, you know, expensive talent. You know, if you want to book some very high profile musician, they're listed on an app and it's easy to find. And somehow this is something that VC was going to throw money at. And they, in order to like draw publicity for it and as a kickoff for the, I guess, app for the startup, they wanted to have this like, very exclusive music festival in the Bahamas on, as they said, Pablo Escobar's former island, which apparently was an island in the Bahamas that he used, like that had an airstrip that he used to, you know, smuggle cocaine or whatever drugs into the United States. But they, after this 
kick off where they have these very high profile models like you know Bella Hadid and like uh, Emily Ratajkowski and these very like expensive they throw a ton of VC money at these at these women and on the strength of like this photo shoot with these models the beach and the kind of I guess Instagram posts that they paid these people to do people assumed that there was this humongous party waiting to happen and uh, they sold out tickets to Firefest like instantly and they promised just I mean what were some of the things they promised like villas and you're going to be on a desert island and it's going to be this well, paradise right. let's but 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 t- specifically like they sold these like expensive packages for yeah like you said villas uh like luxury uh lodgings in like uh these uh like beachside cabins um and then they were they had to uh just to uh have enough space for the amount of people that booked to sleep they had to book a cruise ship that would be docked offshore which then leads to the logistical issue of how do you get all these drunk people in the middle of the night onto a cruise ship to sleep without anyone getting hurt right and so this is just all these plans are made in just like not shown but what is clearly just like a cloud of cocaine around billy and just without any forethought to the logistics and it's said many times planning a festival like this takes uh, at least a year and they only had like four or five months. Uh, so how else does he sort of um, fuck up along the way before the guests arrive? Um, I, okay, so they are tasked with building a music festival out of scratch in a place with no infrastructure as we said pablo escobar's former island but that quickly becomes less of a problem because they they bought the island through some kind of bizarre deal and then the seller like one of the terms of it was that they weren't supposed to i guess advertise that it had been pablo escobar's drug running island and of course immediately in like the first social media post for this thing they say like pablo escobar's former island and the person just kicks them off the island and does not let them use the uh the island for the festival so then they have to find another one and they end up on uh on great <laughs> on greater exuma which is this uh, the biggest island in the bahamas it's the one you like fly into and they rent space north of sandals and they didn't tell anybody that this <laughs> change had occurred <laughs> but what they did was like photoshop the area that they had rented and they photoshopped like sandals like right like uh under it they just uh, photoshopped it out to make it look like a private island but it's really just this like disgusting like just i mean just beaches of gravel and i think the the thing is just as these promises clear over time become you know, clearly they don't have the the bandwidth for this. They did not plan this. They just thought that they, if they got enough excitement and money behind them, they could do, like, literally anything to the point that, I mean, 
So the the first one, the first documentary goes more into like the background of fire and you know has the interview with Billy and kind of like what led him to like the scammy sort of shit. But the second documentary does has a lot of footage, as he said, on the ground. And one of the things on the ground in the Netflix documentary, which was called Fire, the Greatest Party That Never Happened, they paid like hundreds of these Bahamian like day laborers and like contractors to just erect, I mean, structures like tents. I mean, the tents are ghastly looking to me they look like a fucking like like a quarantine or like an earthquake or like famine response or something like the un set them up well right i think they literally had a fema logo on them yeah i mean it looks like a, a war zone and they ended up stiffing a ton of these workers and just the eventually of course the once they're unable to like fully build this they can't get enough food for people they have even have trouble bringing in water through customs to the point that they asked this the one man whose name i'm forgetting who uh had been like an event planner for 30 years and for some reason believed in billy and they asked him to literally like suck the customs officials dick to get the water through and he like fully prepared to do it and he just described this story in the netflix documentary but um he did not go through with it luckily and the water was released but it just goes to show like how how chaotic this ended up being once it got on the ground so you in both documentaries um but really more in the Netflix one, I think, because they had the full cooperation and it was co-produced, I think, by, like, Fuck Jerry Media, who was right. this uh, sort of meme uh, account that uh, got big by, like, doing, like, you know, the fat Jew thing where they, like, steal memes from people. And then they just became, like, the kings of sponsored content. So... You know, ethically, you could also question the Netflix doc for, you know, working with this uh, team that really did uh, sort of aid and abet Billy McFarlane in this scam by deleting Instagram comments where people were literally just asking, like, hey, which airport do I go to? <laughs> like any like leg like actual questions that people had that they were commenting on the, the uh, Fire Festival Instagram page were being deleted by fuck jerry media who was running it yeah i read any of the f members of fuck jerry media who were participating in this documentary as trying to kind of exonerate themselves by explaining their side of it or something but i mean in the end i think this was such a cataclysmic thing that i you know i'm not sure if i hold it against anyone involved although there is plenty of blame to go around i mean the the ethical concerns, I don't know if they, like, affected my judgment of this terribly much. And I guess they do make this tacit deal of, like, if you get to see all this footage, you have to kind of accept that you're watching something that, I guess, put money in the pockets of the people who perpetrated this, you know, kind of massive crime. But, of course, implicated in all of this is is Ja, Ja Rule, the, the, the rapper we mentioned who has taken to the internet to defend himself... Uh, claiming that he too was hustled and scammed and bamboozled by, you know, Billy McFarland and Fuck Jerry. So I uh, I stumbled upon his original post and I just want to read it. This is from April twenty eighth, twenty seventeen, one twenty eight p.m. 
We are working right now on getting everyone off off the island safe. That is my immediate concern. I will make a statement soon. I'm heartbroken this at this moment. My partners and I wanted this to be an amazing event. It was all caps, not a scam, as everyone is reporting. I don't know how everything went so left, but I'm working so, to make it right, but making sure everyone is refunded. I truly apologize as this is all caps, not my fault. But I'm taking responsibility. I'm deeply sorry to anyone who was inconvenienced by this. So that now, was it. <laughs> that was his post the day of. Now, when we evaluate Ja Rule's role in all of this, I think it's important to mention that in the documentary, I think Ja Rule comes off as like one of the dumbest guys in the room. Not to be mean to him or anything, but no, that one that one video where he's like, "And we're gonna be fucking like porn stars." Yeah, he, he just doesn't come off well in this. He's clearly like having a little too much fun partying with like these white twenty five year olds. He literally calls Billy McFarlane like the Larry Bird to his like Magic Johnson and shit. Like very funny stuff. And but- I- I think something we haven't highlighted enough is just, I don't know, there is this, like, freakish, like, Instagram culture that is sort of the, like, the backbone of this whole event and, like, what happened. It's, like, it's all so, like, fake, like, from beginning to end, like, what Billy's trying to achieve with this, and it is, like, late capitalist, like, product, you know? Yeah, and one of the arguments of the the first movie, which I think was taken the wrong way, this argument that I guess um, the w- th- he's a like a grotesque outgrowth of millennial culture. People saw that as like a finger pointed at millennials, or like they were blaming us for Billy McFarlane. But I think the Hulu documentary Fire Fraud was really good about actually kind of making it more about like this is what is expected of us in this like current climate the idea is that you're gonna be i mean the word influencer is used a billion times in in like both these documentaries the idea is that the people who went to firefest are influencers and like the it's just influencers all the way down it's all based on you know instagram likes and basically nothing i mean this is like the one of the most superficial things but because it was billy mcfarland was able to coach it in this like kind of uh or couch it in this kind of i guess startup or like business you know experience culture you know and and honestly i think just older people are like willing to throw a lot of millennials money at millennials because they think that they're this ticket to like understanding what it is to be our generation in this like late capitalist hellscape but everything they land on just makes things worse i mean it's like the vice news school of you know branding or whatever or business and i guess when you watch people describe like the way billy worked where it was basically just yeah like putting out uh one problem by creating two more problems and i think billy does reflect a sort of millennial like fake it till you make it like we are encouraged to do that yeah he's always like you know hustle or like we're results oriented like every time they bring up a problem to the superiors I guess they always the workers who are interviewed in this, especially in the Netflix documentary, say that they were met with kind of you know responses like "I don't want to, we're not a problems organization, we're a solutions organization" and stuff. You know, empty nonsense. It's just a, a manager telling you work harder, do more, do it right, do it again. Like, and it was interesting. The I guess the people they interviewed. One of the most interesting people was. Did you see the guy in the Netflix documentary whose name was like Medavid? <laughs> 
like he was yes. David. I was with like, an is that a typo <laughs> at the beginning? And he was like one of the one of the developers who worked on, I guess, the Fire app that was the original product before the festival. I, I guess sank the whole thing and Magnesis and you know Billy McFarland's freedom. Yeah, a lot of uh, interesting characters in the documentary. One of them, Marianne Roll, who was a restaurant owner on the island who was stiffed, I think at least like $50,000 by Billy. Maybe it was more. Yeah, because she says she had to pay people. Because like I said earlier, they didn't pay these Bahamian contractors. And when they left the island, I mean, all these people who they did business with, who were like kind of their liaisons to the island, were forced to like stay behind. They didn't get paid either. And then they are stuck on, you know, a pretty small island with a lot of people who are like pissed off and are like, where's my money like showing up at their houses and stuff and uh the yeah, and if you- you're like the, if you're the organizer who like got all them together like yeah they see you as like their representative to billy so they they blamed this one guy and he had to like flee the island not to mention i mean they also i think went into i guess how the i guess the Bahamian like tourism board and like a university on the island start like demanded money out of the out of the fire organization and then they stiffed them as well and i mean clearly they pissed off like everybody on this island so anyone who was like tied to it was a scapegoat and this lady ended up like spending her whole life savings like fifty thousand dollars to pay people who were rightly pissed off because they weren't paid for working around the clock because billy and his bullshit like didn't uh come through or provide the experience that he said he would and uh do you remember how they said that one person said that like the only fun part of firefest was when they first landed and they went to marianne's bar and they were just sitting on the beach before like the chaos started and they went to the festival grounds yeah it was like the only successful part of the event <laughs> thousands of like you know uh white people descending on this island with basically nowhere for them to go other than this woman's restaurant and bar and then they're bussed on school buses to the festival location and it's literally just these FEMA tents and that were covered in rainwater from the night before like the mattresses were all soaked so I mean to people who spent 4,000 to like I don't even know tens of thousands to go to this festival and have like this luxury experience. And they were told days before to load like at least $3,000 onto like these wristbands. Right. So that Billy could have the liquid capital to use so that he could continue to try to build this doomed festival. And just at no point was anyone like, look, you have to cancel it. Like there's, you're not going to be able to do this. And it's, it just goes to these insane proportions and they did it on the backs of these Bahamian people. And I was very glad to see that after this uh, documentary went out and people saw this woman's impassioned plea, Marianne uh, Roll's impassioned plea, uh, she got a GoFundMe started for her that reached over $100,000 and she made back the money. And I mean, like, $50,000 is a lot to anybody, but to, like, a, a woman in, like, the, in the Bahamas, that's a ton of money, you know, even to a business owner. So... I want to end this discussion by uh, just saying Billy and everything he represented, I just I hope that 
to our listeners who have watched and will watch this documentary like i just hope like it repulses you as much as it repulsed me like because it freaks me out that like this is the model for millennials to follow like because it's all built on this like perception of intelligence and power and like just like to see that celebrated so much in the doc before like his great fall I just hope that's like as irritating for everyone to watch as me. Yeah, I definitely think the LinkedIn crowd would benefit from taking a listen from like Billy McFarlane's tale, which I mean, the only way he was able to do this, as you can imagine, was by bilking people out of millions of dollars. And that's why he's in jail currently is because he stole like tens of millions of dollars from investors and from customers and from just everyday people. But then it was that and then... He was out on, um, wasn't he out on bail? Yes. And then he did another ticket scam? Doing more ticket scams. And he returned to these like bread and butter scams. And I think in the first one, they talk about how he, he's just a genuine con man and they never quit. It's like a weird addiction. And um, he just, even even in these like extremely high profile conditions, he was like, well, time to start selling some, uh, you know, promising people some tickets and then pulling strings to figure out how I can get them so I can keep scamming and have like, you know, liquid capital in my back pocket. And, you know, and he liked driving around in like a Maserati and projecting this image of like success, which was totally just built on spending VC money. And for a long time, for way too long, he was like rewarded for it. So I just keep replaying anytime I think of Billy, I keep replaying that scene when the guy was like, it was like the night before and Billy just kept leaving the like stressed out room of like uh, organized people organizing the event. And he would just ride on his like four wheeler for like 10 minutes as fast as he could. And then he would come back like (laughs) a moment I genuinely uh, loved from this film. Uh, also, on a str- just a, like a filmmaking level, the Hulu one had a, a lot of annoying like stock footage. Yeah, yeah, it was not like it wasn't as much of a professional endeavor as the fu- Netflix uh, documentary. I would say the Netflix documentary is a a better watch, although the Hulu documentary might have been better at contextualizing it. So, I guess if you have time, start with the Hulu one. But the Netflix one definitely has the juicy footage you're going to want to see about this. And that'll do it for the pop culture corner. And what do you have for story time, Sam? All right. So this is uh, a harrowing story. This is back in college, back in New Orleans, where I went to college. And I there's a there's a pretty famous bar in New Orleans called Snake and Jake's. Um, I don't think I don't think I took you there when we went to New Orleans, Dan. But uh, either way, it's like. It looks like a hut, kind of. It looks kind of dilapidated, and it's very like dark in- inside. It's a, clearly a dive bar, and it's kind of it's in like a residential neighborhood. It's uh, people describe it as a hole in the wall, but it got a lot of like national write ups. So now it's kind of like a pretty well known spot. But in college, it was like becoming very very popular, and uh, it was a common late night stop. I had a lot of friends who lived in the neighborhood. And it's a very like sleazy, but also like kind of it's very disorienting on the inside because it's there are no windows. It's pretty dark. The lights are all, you know, a a red and uh, it's hard to judge distances. And they're always like moving the furniture around in there. But 
I also, in general, feel like at concerts or at bars in public places, like I'm six four, I always wind up like walking into people or people, I guess, get pissed off because I'm like in their presence. But I, <laughs> it happens more so, like at concerts. I once got punched by a guy at a band of horses concert for like. Standing. That's not like a violent fan base. <laughs> I know. I was like, dude, like he was. I don't know. He was just clearly having a bad time. It looked like he was there with like his girlfriend. He wasn't with the music, but that's not the main story here. Either way, I had been at this place. I had, you know, been, we hopped to another place, but I think I'd, I realized I had left my tab open at the other place. You know, I was being young and rambunctious. I was letting people, other people make the decisions because I was, you know, trying to spend more time with certain people. But at the same rate, I went, I wound up back there to close my tab. And I told my friends, I'd be like, it's just a minute. I'll be right back out. I go inside and I, you know, walk up to the bar. Everything seems fine. I signal to the bartender and he's like walking over. And the next thing I know, this hand comes out of nowhere and like scratches at my face and it like grabs at my glasses and pulls them down. They like fall on the ground. She grabs my shirt and pours a drink just straight in my fucking face and like drenches me. It's like going down into like underneath my shirt. You know, like when you got hit with a snowball as a kid and it like gets into your jacket. Oh yeah. That like, yeah, that cold, like chill. Yeah. It's like running down and I'm so shocked by this because I was in such a like, you know, I have a couple drinks in me and also I'm like in this very kind of happy, benign like stage and I'm just like waiting for the bartender waiting for my friends are waiting for me and out of nowhere this happens and like I'm sputtering and like looking around like who could have done this This is like a force of nature and I look down it's like this woman who is like a foot and a half shorter than me and she like looks me in the eye and like shakes her fish is like this is what you get when you like bump into someone and spill their drink and I guess presumably I had spilled bumped into her on the way in she had spilled her drink and then taken the rest of it and poured it fucking straight in my face i ran away <laughs> i'm like i'm so unproud because i was like I, there's no good to be to be gained by re- continuing this conversation and i ran there's a man who is soaked will never be taken seriously yeah and what am i gonna do like yell at her like hit her or something come on it's not gonna look good <laughs> <laughs> I could just see you like covered in like a beer, just like it was actually like a fruity cocktail. It was because it was sweet and it was in like my mouth and shit. And like it was my shirt was getting sticky as it like uh, hardened and like kind of like fused to my chest. It was awful. And um, of course, my glasses are gone, too. And I just ran to the other side of the bar to get away from her because I'm also a coward. Like I don't get into physical fights. And um, I like hailed the bar debtor and the guy, he had no reaction to like what just happened to me. He comes back over to me and I'm like, can I please close my tab and get out of here? And um, he he closed it out, and I was able to leave without any further confrontation. But I couldn't find my glasses, and I started looking around, and I made eye contact with like the person who assaulted me, and I was like, "Hell, fucking no!" And you know, I can make it without my glasses, so I escaped, and I reclaimed the glasses ignominiously at a later date, so I could resume my evening. But of course, I get out, and my friends are like, "What took so long?" And I'm just like disheveled and missing my glasses. <laughs> Yes, if you, I was attacked. <laughs> I was I was genuinely shocked by the time I got outside. I was like traumatized, but uh either way, I mean 
it's just something that happens when you're being a ruffian at like it was probably like 20 or 21 at this time like running around and being a hoodlum so yeah those uh i don't know i think yeah any sort of like drink pour situation you just you got to just get away there's no again <laughs> you're not going to you're not going to get the high ground if you're already soaked yeah, and by that point in the evening, I was ready to call it a night, and I headed home with like with the crew to not like <laughs> avoid any further altercations. I guess. Well, and that's a story. Um, you know, Sam, I don't think you would have had that experience at Fire Festival. I think you would have had the weekend of your life. No, I liked the people who were like the hoarders who claimed like all of the towels of a certain size or like the pillows or something. And they were like, I am the pillow king. And they like just like had you know, an abundance of them in their tents. And they'd like people would be like running through the night like who has, uh, you know, this vaguely essential life tool. Yeah, And, you know, the Netflix one, I kind of wanted more stories of like I want to hear about like the fights. Because like I, I, I can't imagine a bunch of like f- you know extremely drunk like you know rich people fighting for like a slice of lettuce like i just i wanted more of that i'm glad that nobody died at this event was i didn't think that when it first happened but after watching the netflix documentary i was like wow people were, i guess it's all influencers they're not really tough guys or anything but it did seem pretty dire given the circumstances so uh you know, we we don't want anybody to 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 pay the ultimate price for being too online. No, and uh, we'll leave it there. That's the plunge uh, at plunge underscore podcast on Twitter, at Spuventacular for me on Twitter, and Sam, uh, where can they follow you? I'm at Wagstank on Twitter, and of course, we're trying to do this more regularly and get our episodes out more regularly, but uh, hope you enjoy the content. Obviously, we put our most into this. Yes, and uh, please let us know if there's stuff you'd like us to cover, or uh, I don't know, anything. Uh, Please rate five stars on iTunes, because we need it please it uh or or they they won't give me back my family yeah democracy dies in darkness everybody think about that one <laughs> yeah just write that as the comment <laughs> with the five stars which is the, i think the only really important part yep and thanks a lot for listening we'll see you next week bye